through 38. So it's a little substantial chunk. Um, this is Acts uh, Act chapter 20, verse 17 to 38. Um, I would like to remind you as you turn that this is God's word. It alone has the power to change our hearts, our minds. Uh, this is God speaking directly to us, to our hearts, and to our situation. Let's go to him now, reading of his word. Now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, terrifying both uh, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you uh, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God when he obtained, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among, you, uh, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all, uh, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these uh, hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he said spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father God, we um, thank you for this word. We thank you that it is meaningful to us and that it speaks to our hearts. So I pray now that as I um, preach on it, that you would get me out of the way um, and that it would be your word that is that is taught. It is your son's precious holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, there's a pretty famous or maybe infamous uh, 60 Minutes report um, that you may have uh, may, may or not be aware of um, where... They interviewed Tom Brady. Steve Croft interviewed Tom Brady. And in this interview, um, they wanted to talk about Tom's, like, just unrivaled success in the NFL. This is, this is when he was still with the Patriots. Um, he had not um, 
you know, been traded to the Bucks, or I guess he wasn't traded, but left for the Buccaneers. But um, this was after tr- Tom had three Super Bowl rings, and they just want to say, hey, Tom, what keeps you going? Is this all worth it? Like, this is Tom Brady. This is the man who um, had three Super Bowl rings, had a $41 million contract at the time, who was married to the highest-paid supermodel in history with Giselle. Like, he had everything. He was going to be a future Hall of Famer. Um, he had... Probably he's gonna have more rings. He ends up having more rings than any other single player. Like this is Tom Tom Brady and Steve Croft. He asks him this question. He says, um, "I mean, obviously this is all you could ever want, right?" And Tom, his response now infamous is, "Yeah, but I didn't think it would come with all this baggage, though. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me?" Some people might say that this is it, that I've reached my dream, that this is it, but it's not. Tom Brady, who had everything, who had basically had lived the dream of every boy who's ever strapped on a helmet to play the game of football, he had everything, and yet when he asked, how does it feel, is it worth it, his response is basically, not really. People keep telling me that this is it, but I feel like there's something else out there for me. The question I want to ask this morning, uh, and the question I think our text asks, is, is what you've devoted your life to worth it? Is what you've devoted your life to worth it? And, maybe even more uh, specifically to some of us, is what prize are we seeking after? Are we all seeking after the same prize? Well, I believe this passage addresses just what um, God views a life that has been lived, that's worth it. I think our passage deals with a, a, a life that's not wasted. But first, before we jump into that, before we answer those questions, I do want to take a moment and define the terms worth and value. Um, now, I'm not going to jump into some tedious semantic argument because if you've taken a business class or you've read a book in the business world, um, you'll note that People like to parse that those two things out, right? There's a fine line between what something's worth and the value something has. I'm using those two terms interchangeably here. Um, basically to say that worth or value um, is, is essentially dictated by two things, and that's the circumstances that we find ourselves in, i.e., like what are, how much we, we find ourselves needing something, like how much we desire something, um, and the thing itself, um, like that—that's what worth. That's what defines worth and value. Um, how much you want it, how much it's wanted, and how much it's worth inherently. Kind of like this: um, gold, right? Gold—the gold market fluctuates pretty wildly now, but um, it's defined by two things. One, gold to humans is inherently valued valuable, right? It doesn't really matter how much people want or need it. Gold is always going to have some standard value to it. Shiny rocks. We love them. We got to collect them, put them on our hands, do all this stuff. Like that, they're, they're inherently value, valuable. Um, but they become more valuable the more people want them. The price goes up, right? So when we say, is your life worth it? Have you lived a life of value? We're, we're saying... Has your, has your life been something that other people might seem desirable? Or has have you lived a life that is inherently worth something? Okay? 
So we're, we're going to go with that. So the, there's a, this idea of uh, good old supply and demand um, meets the inherent, um, the inherent quality of any object that we may um, find ourselves with or wanting. Um, so we as Christians, again, another example, um, we as Christians believe that human life is inherently valuable, right? So we've all lived a life at some level that is valuable, that is worthwhile, because it has a lot of inherent value. Your life does. Um, but we can, the value can go up. The worth can go up. So what does it mean for a Christian or for a human to have their the value of their life go up? What does it mean um, that to live a life that's worthwhile? So And what does it have to do with this passage? And equally important, what does it have to do with us? Well, to answer both of those questions, uh, the answer to both of those questions is really central to understanding this passage. What is a what is a worthwhile life? What is a valuable life? Those things, like to understand those questions, to understand that um, concept is central to understanding this passage because Paul is making a value statement. Paul is making a value statement in the entirety of in his final speech to the. The churches in Asia, right before he goes to Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be uh, persecuted, where he knows he's going to be arrested and ultimately put to death, um, Paul is saying, I lived a life that was worth it. And so he's making a value statement on what, what he did as a human, what he did as a Christian. He is claiming that spreading the gospel is worth, is worth, is more valuable than his own life. He says, I, I know that imprisonment, I know that persecution await me, but I must go because I must share the gospel. We actually read in, in 1 Thessalonians verses 2 9, it's one of my favorite verses where he says, You know how I labored and told for you like a mother nursing her own children. Um, I cared for you. Like he, he talks about how much he labored and toiled just for the chance to, to share the gospel with some people. Just how much he labored and toiled just to proclaim the gospel. How much he loved people. Like a, a mother nursing her own child. We read in Colossians verse one, uh, or chapter 1 verse 24 that Paul rejoiced in his sufferings. Like he was, he was happy to be persecuted if that meant that some people might know Jesus. He, he was happy to know that if his persecution meant that some people heard the gospel who otherwise wouldn't have heard the gospel whether that be jailers, whether that be uh, government officials, whether that be soldiers, whatever it is, he was happy to suffer. He counted it a joy to suffer because he said, I got to fill up the what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. He got to, he got to continue the work of Christ on the, on the cross by being persecuted to share the gospel. We read in this very passage that Paul, again, fully expects to be imprisoned in Jerusalem, that afflictions await him in Jerusalem, yet he's determined to push ahead because he does not account his life of any value compared to the preciousness of the gospel and compared to the preciousness of sharing the gospel. He only cared about finishing the race, finishing his ministry that he received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of grace of God. To Paul, this ministry was worth more even than his own life. All because Paul knew the debt that he owed to Jesus. 
You see, Paul had a, a very clear view of his condition. Paul had a very clear view of his condition, and so the value of the grace that he was given was worth more than his very life, to the point that he would give it all up just to participate in sharing it with others. You see, I'm convinced that for Paul, even if no one came to confess Christ through his ministry, even if his ministry, like, no one, like, even if Paul had died in obscurity, and we, we didn't have his letters, and, and no one came to, to know Jesus because Paul's ministry, I, I am convinced that he would say, you know what? It was worth it because I shared the gospel. I did what had the, the most inherent value that anyone could do. My life was worth it. I'm convinced that he would have been content just to share the word that God had given him because he, he knew that staying the course was worth it. You know, what a, what a thing to value. What a thing to put your hope in. You know, I said earlier, value is determined uh, by how much we want something, but it's also determined by this, the, the inherent quality of an object. Again, gold's another great example. The, you know, the carrot of the gold, something can be more pure or less pure, and that inherently affects the value of it. What could be more pure? What can be more valuable than the love of the God of the universe. What could be more pure than that? What could be more valuable than the love of God, the God of the universe who loved us so much that he sent his son to die the most gruesome death ever conceived just to be with you, just to spend time with you, just so that you could come to him and he could go to you and we could embrace and we could be like father and son, that we could be like husband and wife because that's how God, how much God loved us. You see, Paul saw the inherent worth of the gospel of grace and that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies at war with God, Christ died for us. And that news, that gospel, has an immense inherent value for all mankind. And so Paul's life, what gave Paul's life worth and meaning and value was sharing it was sharing that news, that gospel. Whether we believe the gospel or not doesn't change the reality of Christ's love for us. Whether we believe in the gospel doesn't actually diminish the inherent quality, the inherent value of God's love. It's always valuable. You know, one, one part of the value might be determined by our need of the thing, but the other is inherent. But the love of God has infinite value because the love of God is infinitely valuable, inherently infinite, and so it has infinite value. It doesn't matter if we if we realize just how much we actually need God. It doesn't matter our, our desire for the love of God. God's love is inherently, infinitely valuable because it's inherently infinite. So... What does that have to do with us? Well, obviously, you know, we should want the love of God. Well, how do we apply, how do we achieve Paul's evaluation of God's love in our own life? How do we, how do we get to where Paul was, basically? How can we get to the point where he said, my life is valuable because I share the gospel with other people? Well, first off, we need to consider how much we actually value the gospel. We need to consider how much it's worth to us. Right? Like to get to the point where Paul is, we have to have the actual desire, the actual need for God's love. Does it mean a lot to us? 
we, we, does the gospel mean a lot to us? Or is it something we only do on Sunday and maybe Wednesday? Is it something we only do at Bible studies? Or is it something that we, that we live out in our lives um, at work, in, in our homes? Is it something we talk about with our, with our neighbors and our friends, our college buddies? Is it, does it change how we, how we respond to our husbands and our wives? Like, what, is the gospel inherently valuable to you? Is it, is it immensely valuable to us, or do we value it very little, only when it's convenient, only when it's necessary? Do we put stock in the gospel of grace when its rewards in this life are outweighed by the cost in this life? If, if it means you're going to lose your job because you don't want to work Sunday mornings, is it, does, it, does it outweigh the 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 cost that you may find yourself paying because you love Jesus, does it mean you're going to lose friendships? Because someone just can't stand your Bible beating, even though you don't beat your Bible, you just tell them, you know, you just live a righteous life in front of them and that convicts them of their sin? Does it mean you you, you cave to their the pressure or their perceived, um, their, their perception of your of your life and of what you say? Do you, do you cave to those things? Or do you value the gospel of grace? Do you value God's love above all things? Have you made the right appraisal? You see, um, I think the main obstacle to seeing the gospel clearly in our own lives is our own pride. I think that when we think of ourselves big, when we don't, like Paul, think of ourselves as the chief of sinners, right? It's hard to get a proper, a proper appraisal of, of God's love. When we think that we're big, that we don't need it, when we think we can do everything on our own, that we can maybe even earn our salvation, when we think of those things, when we, when we think of ourselves big and we don't really own up to our sin, well, the gospel is never going to be worth much to us. If, we're all, if, we're our, if we are all our own little kings, I'm having trouble today, uh, if, we are our, we, if we are all our own little kings, um, then like, how, what good is another king? Right, but if we are if we are the chief of sinners, well, man, that changes the value of the gospel in our own lives, in our in our own eyes. Um, the value of the gospel skyrockets. Um, there's this great movie. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's animated. Sorry, I'm a nerd. Um, but this one, this is like I think a universally beloved animated movie, uh, The Prince of Egypt. Right? Is it? Have you have most of y'all seen this? No, maybe. Can I get some head shakes? I know we're Presbyterian, but no. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, I, I would recommend this movie to the point where it was like, hey, go and like, go buy it because it's just great. Um, but it's the story, it's the story of Moses, like, but it's like, you know, it's Hollywoodified, I guess, um, if you want to put it that way. Um, but it's a musical and it tells the story of Moses. It tells him being pushed out of Egypt, you know, going out being a shepherd and then returning and the plagues and all and rescuing the, the, the Jews from Egypt. Um, there's this great song that once you hear it, you'll you'll keep singing it. And for those who've heard it, I'm sorry, um, it's you know earworm. Um, but it's called "Through Heaven's Eyes." And the song in the song, the lyrics say this: "A lake of gold in the desert sand is less than a cool fresh spring, and to one lost sheep, a shepherd boy is greater than the richest king." And so what they're getting at is, what good is a lake of gold if you're going to die of thirst a few hours after finding it? And what good is a is all the king's riches to a sheep? What good is a king 
to a sheep. All they want is a shepherd boy. All they want is someone who's who's just there to, to be for them, to care for them, to lead them to the, the cool spring, not the lake of gold. They don't care. So like when we understand our need, we understand the, the value of the gospel, we understand how much we actually do need it, whether we realize we need it or not. Well, our perception of all of life, our perception of all of the riches of this life change because they're, we see them as worthless compared to the beauty of the gospel. Um, another way uh, to think about it, this is maybe a, a little easier for, uh, for us to understand, but the, the Titanic, right? When the Titanic went down, there was a handful of millionaires aboard the Titanic. One such millionaire was named Major A.H. Puchin. I'm probably butchering his name, but Puchin. Um, and he was he was just barely a millionaire. He had just cracked that seventh digit, so he wasn't like hurting for money, obviously, but he wasn't like Jeff Bezos or, or, or Bill Gates or anything. Um, but when it was going down in his cabin at the time, he had $300,000, so almost a third of his wealth. Right was in his cabin, um, gold, jewelry, cash. It was all there. And as he left his cabin to escape onto a life raft, you know what he grabbed? There are three oranges. That's what he had to say. He said, "I picked, he said at the moment the money seemed a mockery. I picked up three oranges instead. He's like all that cash, all that gold, all that jewelry that he probably spent so much of his life chasing and, and earning." Nothing. I wanted three oranges. Uh, I wanted some, some orange juice uh, for my morning breakfast. Now, uh, those three oranges actually were the reason that his entire raft survived. Um, he grabbed some food. Some other people had also grabbed a little bit of food, and while they were waiting to be rescued out in the you know, frozen Arctic, they actually had something to nourish them. Um, they had a little bit of the orange juice kept them hydrated while they were being uh, rescued uh, and sustained. You see, our situation is is very much like you know the shepherd uh, or the the sheep in the desert. Our sister, our situation is very much like Major A. H. Puchin on the on the Titanic, right? We have we have a decision to make. We're we are dead without a lifeline if we don't have the proper uh, if we don't have the proper uh, value system in place. Like we can gather our riches, we can try to shove all of our jewels and our gold and our cash in a suitcase and, and throw them on a life a life raft where they'll be useless. We can try to, you know, grab all the all the gold in that lake of gold that we can and try to carry it out in the desert on our back. We can, but what are we really doing? What are we really doing when we do that? Are we gathering riches while the ship goes down? Are we gathering dust while we while we sink into quicksand? Or are we? Are we holding on to something that has immense value, that actually brings life? Are we grabbing the three oranges? So having Paul's evaluation of the gospel in our own lives is understanding that we are very much like that sheep in the desert. We're very much like A.H. Pugin. We have to stop gathering up dust while we sink in the creek sand but, and, and grab those three oranges. We have to realize that our sin has us, we're dead in our sin. We're going down with the ship. The only thing that's going to save us is Christ. Secondly, we must consider that we must consider what. Um, sorry. Second, we secondly we must understand that we oftentimes and regularly miss 
evaluate Christ's worth. We do. So we have to understand that we have to understand how much value Christ has inherently. We also have to understand that uh, as sinners, we're often going to put other stuff above Christ. We're often going to value other things more than Christ at various moments in our lives. We're going to have misplaced values, and that misplaced value is going to cause us to sin. You see, when we value our, our own comfort above Christ, well, then we, we're tempted to be lazy. When we value our, our image or, or our reputation, then we're tempted to, to lie and cover up our eyes, right? That's, that's the Instagram effect, right? We, we're so concerned with putting out that best picture of our family, our Facebook effect. We're so interested in putting out the best picture of our, of our family, ourselves, our kids, our grandkids, that, um, that we're, we're going to cover up the, the pile of dirty diapers in the corner, right? Like we don't want to show, we don't want to show what it took to get there. Um, that, that's when we value our own image, that's what happens. When we value our, our titles, our jobs, our wealth, then we're so um, often tempted to, to um, neglect the things that God has commanded us to take care, take care of. Um, when we, we value our titles, our money, um, we, we neglect those things that God has told us to take care of, such as our, our spouses, our children, our own spiritual, our own spiritual well-being. Um, we neglect all those things all for the sake of an extra hour of work, all for the sake of a few more dollars. It's so easy for us to, to place other things above Christ, to, to value others or other things above the thing that has infinite value. We have to understand our situation. We have to understand that we're going down the ship, and we have to understand that oftentimes we're going to be tempted to grab the jewels. You see, Paul, he valued his own status as a Pharisee up until the moment where Christ grabbed him on the road to Damascus. And I bet you, I know we don't see it much in Scripture, but there, he does mention that he has a thorn in his side, but we don't see it much in Scripture. But I'm sure Paul probably rescued with that status that he lost for a, a large portion of his life after he became a Christian. He probably rescued, wrestled with the fact that he, he was a Pharisee, that he had it all. He was a leader in the religious community, and then when he abandoned all that for Jesus, well, he, he basically became a traveling salesman of sorts. He became someone who was, who was mocked and beaten on the regular. He probably rescued with that lost status. But the thing is, is that Christ kept, he kept coming back to Christ. He kept putting his eye on Christ, just like King David. We can think of King David pretty easily, right? Where What, what is King David referred to as so often? A man after God's own heart. If you go back and read the stories that David is the key character in, like that's not what you get. <laughs> um, like he 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 sins pretty grotesquely, fairly often. Um, commits murder, commits adultery. We know those things. He um, has to wage war against his son because he was an absentee father. He allows one son to rape one of his daughters. Like I mean, does not yeah does not not a pretty picture of David. But why is David referred to as a man after God's heart? Because every time he realizes his fault, he realizes that he messed up, and he runs back to God. He runs back to the God, runs back to the God who put him in power. And he kept he at the end of his life, he says, "I failed so miserably, but God, you are good to me anyway. Please continue being good to me." Like that's that's what Paul, that's what David is known for. Paul probably had a similar issue where like, like he had to 
remember where he came from and remember the goodness that God um, bestowed on him. And you have to keep coming back to the fact that, that Christ's, um, the worth of Christ was, was more than anything he could get on his own. It was worth more than any title, any status as a Pharisee. You see, he had to understand not only his situation as the chief of sinners, but he also had to understand that he was still going, going to grab the jewels and not the oranges. He, that he was still going to, to, to try to gather sand while he's sinking in quicksand, right? Instead of following the, the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And to put his faith in the, in the fact that God's going to keep, keep on coming back to him. He's going to keep on um, picking him up dusting him off and setting him on the, the right path. You see, we do this. We value things above Jesus. What is the what are those things? How can you let them go? And how can you can you place them at the, the feet of the cross? How can you place it at the foot of the cross? Finally, we we not only need to understand our we, we not only need to understand that our situation, our need for the gospel, we don't only need to understand the, that we often misvalue the gospel, we misappraise the gospel, we, we need to understand the inherent worth of the gospel. Paul understood all of it. It's, it's, it's comprehensive. We must be convinced that the inherent worth of the gospel is better than any lake of gold. The beauty of the gospel is that it's a truth that does not change whether we believe it or not. It is truth, period. Big final, you know, final period, final Final point, right? It's, it is truth. It is the truth, capital T, but on both the and truth, definite article if you're an English nerd. Like, that, that is the gospel, the truth. It does not change. And it's not just a heartless, lifeless truth, but it is a, a, a truth that is also a message of love. It is a, a message of love of love to us and it doesn't change period full stop it doesn't change no matter how bad we get how dirty we get um there's a story that um the philosopher uh, soren kierkegaard again probably butchering his name kierkegaard uh once told um and it's this it's two thieves broke into a jewelry store but instead of stealing anything they simply switched the price tags on everything. Um, they didn't steal anything. They just switched all the price tags. So basically they made all these expensive rings worth pennies. And they made all the costume jewelry worth thousands. And so for weeks, the change never the change went unnoticed. No one knew what, like that they had switched the price tags. Um, until people finally started getting the jewelry that they had bought appraised at different places. Um, and to their, their surprise, essentially... Some people found out that they were basically robbed by the jewelry store, um, and others found out that they had you know, come into some great windfall. The gospel is like the expensive jewelry in that store. It has immense inherent value despite any price tag that we may see on it. It doesn't matter what people paid for it. Its true value is set because of what Christ paid for it. Some of us are like the lucky souls. We've bought real diamond rings thinking we're, we're getting plastic. Um, and some of us are, are like those people who bought, you know, the giant costume jewelry. Um, who, or sorry, some of us are like those who think we bought the, the giant 20-carat gem 
when in reality we bought costume jewelry, that we have something of infinite inherent value that we often treat as, as common junk. We, we choose to shrink away from seeing the praises of what we have because what we think we have is really junk. We think we, would, we ought to value our comfort. We think we ought to we think we ought to value our own lives more than the gospel, but we must be convinced of this infinite inherent worth that it has for our lives, this infinite inherent worth that Christ died for, that Christ paid for with his blood. And the only way to do that is by knowing it, by reading it, understanding, being able to appraise it with our own eyes. Being able to, to, to read it, to understand it, to commit it to memory, to live it out in our own lives. That's what it takes to know the, the truth, the true inherent worth that we have with Christ's gospel. There's a, um, a book called Ready Player One. It's actually a movie now. Um, again, it's a super nerdy thing, but I love it. Um, it it's basically this, it's a kind of a post-apocalyptic uh, story where... Um, they figure out virtual reality. You know, you might see people on the, on, on commercials and stuff now with the giant headset, and they're, like, walking around, right? I've actually gone to one of those, like, video game things. You get the cool thing. You get the gloves, and everything's awesome. Anyway, someone figures it out, and, uh, and like, it becomes this, like, huge thing where they people are wearing these, like, spandex suits, and they have the, the goggles on, and, like, they're able to live out every fantasy that they could ever live uh, in virtual reality. And so what do, what do people do? Well, obviously, they you know, want to scale Mount Everest with Batman, or they want to go and like become Pac-Man, because it's somehow the, the entire world's cultural like ideals stopped in the 80s. Um, but like that, that, was the, that was the whole premise of the movie. It's like this, the, the stout, this romp through nostalgia. So you get like Galaga and Pac-Man and, and, uh, and Gundam and all the like super nerdy stuff of the... Uh, like late 80s, early 90s, um, stuff I kind of grew up on. But um, so that's probably why I like it so much. Um, but this whole thing is like, oh, this world, the world is basically ended. Like it's all overpopulated. They've started living in, um, in mobile homes. They're like stacked 20 high with like scaffolding because there's just no more space. Um, and so to escape from all that, well, they just go into this virtual reality where they can do whatever they, they want. Um, now there's a, Huge controversy surrounding like the overall quality of the story. You don't have to read the book. There's a movie. Um, there's a whole there's a controversy surrounding like the, how good is the story actually. Um, but I read a review after reading that book one time because I was curious to see what like the professionals thought of the book. Um, and it was it was fascinating because in the review the critic made this comment, and I think it speaks to many things in in, in life. You see this. The passivity of life via film strip exacts no price because it confers no prize. I'll read that again. If you're a note taker, this is this is it. The, the passivity of life via film strip exacts no price because it confers no prize. Insert whatever you would find uh, yourself putting faith in into that statement. The passivity of life via Clemson football. The passivity of life via my nine to five job. The passivity of life via my relationship with 
whatever you want to put it in there. Like whatever it is, you insert your you know, your thing of value that you find you play you find yourself valuing above Jesus, and it will fit. It confers no. It, it exacts no price because ultimately it confers no price. I thought that was super insightful. So I ask you, are you living a life that's worth it? Are you living a life that is running after Jesus? Are you living a life that is worth it because it exacts a price and it confers a price? Thanks be to God that he's paid the price. He offers us the prize. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's worth is not determined by us. It's determined by what Christ has paid for it. It's determined by what Jesus paid for it. He paid for it with his life. And now he simply calls us to live it out. Now he calls us to live it out, to offer it to others. A life that is worth it, a life that has value, is one steeped in the gospel and is spent running after Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for this truth. That the only thing in this life that is truly worth it is you. That all the other stuff, all the other things we want to place our value in, our worth in, our identity in, Lord, Lord, we give it to you. We lay it down at the foot of your cross. And Lord, help us to run. Help us to run with um, purpose. Help us to run um, full speed ahead, following Paul's example, to share the gospel with everyone around us. Lord, help us to, to abandon even our own lives for the sake of your word, knowing that it's worth more than anything that we can uh, muster in this life. All the riches of Jeff Bezos, all the riches of Bill Gates mean nothing to your riches, to your son. Lord, help us to live that out. Help us to know that. It is your son's precious. Holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.